Welcome into the QB Sco Show. This is episode 46, brought to you by the fine folk at SB Nation and Bleeding Green Nation. I am your host, Michael Kist. Follow me on Twitter at Michael Kist NFL. Here with me, as always, to break down the upcoming enemy quarterback. We'll take a look at some Wentz performance review against Dallas. We'll do a lot of things here, but here to do that with me is quarterback one in my heart, in our minds. He is Mark Schofield. Mark, brother, I hope you had a Merry Christmas. How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, Mr. Kiss. It's a pleasure to be back with you, and I hope and trust that your holidays were wonderful, and mm. judging by the photos of you at various airport bars, I can be <laughs> confident in the knowledge that they were indeed magical. Yes. Now, of course, we begin with our historical reference, and it's the last one of the 2019 regular season. Should we qualify that we both have historical references? We do. They're both pretty exhaustive. Yes. So, you know what? I know I told you before the show I was going to save mine for the end. I don't care. This is our show. This is what we're going to do. If you if you want to skip the historical reference, if you're not a big fan of them, we get it. Skip to about the 10-minute mark. Yeah. I'm letting you know right now. Skip to about right the 10-minute mark. Because let's be honest. It's December 27th, okay? Yeah. And I'm home with the kids. They're upstairs chomping at the bit because Santa in his infinite wisdom brought them Build-A-Bear gift cards. So I get to go to a mall. On Friday, December 27th, which I'm sure is going to be empty. I'm sure there will be nobody there. Nobody having returns or anything. Yeah, no, it's going to be dead there. So <laughs> look, bear with us, friends. All right, gentle listeners, it's been a season. It's we been a holidays. This. Give us this one, okay? <laughs> and back to the historical reference. There is absolutely no other place to begin, right? Then with the fact that perhaps Eagles tight end Zach Ertz is also a gentle listener. And yes – I am referring to the knowledge at Ertz with a historical reference of his own, spoke of Cortez and burdened the ships upon landing and conquering Mexico. Now, he landed at Veracruz, a Mexican city on the coast across from Cuba, where Cortez and his men had been in Cuba for years prior. And Cortez destroyed the ships, and the message was clear. There's no going back. Now, of course, Cortez like, – there's a bit more to the story, right? There always is with history. Cortez was disobeying a direct order from the governor of Cuba not to engage in any missions of conquest in Mexico. So there's no going back for him either way. In addition, some wonder whether Cortez actually even burned the ships. Cortez had some concerns among his men, specifically a potential mutiny. Many of his men were still loyal to the governor of Cuba, and they had conspired to seize a ship and escape back to Cuba. But Cortez moved swiftly to quash their plans. To make sure there was no such mutiny, he decided to sink his ships on the pretext that they were not seaworthy. So there's always a little something-something on the side. But this pregame speech from Earth sent me down a path of historical oratory. And it brought me to a place Michael Kiss knows well, Pericles. And his speech at the annual public funeral of the war dead at the end of the first year of the Peloponnesian War. Now, I'm going to tweet out this entire speech. It's worth reading if you're a fan of oratory and it's stuff great. like that. But I did just want to read one quick passage from it. And I'm mm. quoting here. For the whole worth is a sepulcher of famous men. And their story is not graven only on stone over their native earth, but on lives far away without visible symbol, woven into the stuff of other men's lives. For you now, it remains to rival what they have done, and knowing that the secret of happiness is freedom, the secret of freedom, a brave heart, not idly to stand aside from the enemy's onslaught. For it is not the poor and luckless, the ones who have no hope of prosperity, who have the most cause to reckon death as little loss, but those for whom fortune may yet keep reversal in store and who would feel the change most of trouble befell them. Moreover, weakly to decline the trial is more painful to a man of spirit than death come in sudden and unperceived in the hour of strength and confidence. Therefore, 
I do not mourn with parent with the parents of the dead who are here with us. Rather, I will comfort them, for they know that they have been born into a world of manifold chances, and that he is to be accounted happy to whom the best lot falls. The best sorrow, such as yours today, or the best death, such as fell to these, for whom life and happiness were bound together. Now, again, the, the whole speech is a tremendous listen. But the yeah. problem, again, <laughs> it was probably the Athenian high watermark. Yeah. The following year brought the Great Plague, which killed thousands, including Pericles himself. More calamities followed as the war expanded to engulf the entire Hellenic world, producing such breakdowns of order and instances of barbarity as the civilized states had never known. The 27-year conflict wiped out two generations, and in the end, Athens surrendered. Her enemies tore down her walls and forbear only at the final hour for massacring her entire populace. Although the city recovered, never the same. The rule of the 30 oligarchs produced a reign of terror. Socrates was tried and condemned to death on charges that were travesties. And less than a century after Pericles' speech, the Athenian Thebian armies were crushed by Philip of Macedon in the era of political autonomy for the Greek world and the city-states was over, mm. never to return. So, speeches. Sometimes nice to read, sometimes not as successful in the end. It's funny. In the summer, I read The Peloponnesian War by Donald Kagan, which is a fantastic read and deals with the exact subject that you're talking about. And it is very, very fascinating. So that, that's a good reference. I also, for my historical reference, wanted to talk about another version of Burn the Ships that Zach Ertz did not reference in his speech to the Eagles before the win over Dallas. And that is of... Agathocles, the tyrant of Syracuse, who reigned from 317 to 289 BC. He was twice banished from Syracuse, if we're going back to, to his beginnings here. Syracuse, a city on the island of Sicily that sits between what would be familiar to us in the gentle listeners as Rome and North Africa. Agathocles seized power by returning to Syracuse with an army and slaughtered the oligarchs. That was his main goal the entire time. So shortly after that, War broke out with Carthage. Carthage had very serious trade interests in the island, had set up several colonies there. Carthage blockaded Syracuse, and in a desperate attempt to shift the focus of the war, Agathocles slipped the Carthaginian naval blockade and landed in North Africa. So he paid for the fleet of 60 ships and 13,500 men by murdering his aristocratic opponents, confiscating their property, pillaging their orphans' inheritances, appropriating temple offerings, so on and so forth. He's a real gem. Now, he lands on Cape Bon. That's roughly 110 kilometers away from Carthage. And with full understanding of the risk in this gamut, he set fire to the ships to eliminate any thought of escape. And this worked for a time. He captures two cities fairly easily and set up camp outside of Carthage. With the bulk of their army, the Carthage army, still on Sicily, the Carthaginians at home assumed that they must have been defeated in Sicily and went into a panic. We're told they tried to appease the gods by sacrificing 200 highborn children while 300 others, quote unquote, voluntarily sacrificed themselves in a fire, which people are so apt to do. Agathocles, right. full of himself at this point and taking on a bit of an Alexander complex, then faced a mutiny from his own troops who were becoming sick of him. And Carthage was fueling this by offering to pay off his army, which was filled with a bunch of mercenaries, of course, and they wanted to be paid. Agathocles then had to put on a great show against this mutiny, acting as if he was going to commit suicide before bringing the mutinous soldiers back into the fold. He followed this up with another victory. Now he's all reinforced again, has a victory against the Carthaginian force. And then he was able to convince a guy known as Ophelus, 
the ruler of a Greek city known as Cyrene or Kyrene, and also a soldier with an actual Alexandrian pedigree having served in the Macedonian army with Alexander. Agathocles promised Ophelus all of the territory that Carthage held in North Africa if they were successful, if they were able to combine their forces. But it was all a ruse. Agathocles murdered Ophelus and brought his large and well-equipped army into his ranks. Now, this is already getting complicated, I understand this, but two things happen after this that are just bonkers. First, a Carthaginian general named Balmokar, who is in Carthage at the time, sent a good deal of the distinguished citizens to fight the Numidian tribes employed by Agathocles, thereby eliminating those who would oppose his own coup to take power in Carthage while they're basically about to have a, a war with Agathocles. Now, Balmokar rampages through the city, killing a bunch of citizens. The citizens are able to resist and then offer amnesty and terms of surrender to the rebels, which are accepted, but that was also a lie, and Balmokar is promptly tortured and killed. So Carthage has their city back after surviving a coup attempt, but they still have Agathocles to deal with, and Agathocles has his own issues. Those issues are that Syracuse is still in a blockade, and in his absence from Sicily, several of their vassal cities had decided, screw this guy, we're going to declare our independence. So Agathocles says, okay, I'm going to go back home, and I'm going to leave my son in charge of the army here, because, yeah, they burned the ships, but they brought more later. The problem was, his son possessed none of his father's talents, and soon asked dad to come back and help. But by the time Agathocles was able to return, he saw the situation was dire, and depending on who you believe, he either straight up bounced on his son, or they got separated. The army there gets beat up on, they deserted, they killed his son, they then offer peace terms, they're offered up by Carthage to that army, they were accepted, followed by, followed by negotiating a peace with Agathocles. Carthage had basically had enough and were financially exhausted and said, just let us have what we had in Sicily before, we'll call all this off, we'll deal with you later, boom, deal. Now, Agathocles, having this huge L, is unable to hold that L, that's just who he is. He declares himself king of Syracuse in 306, pretending like the L never happened, and then tries to stretch his influence into southern Italy, but he's eventually taken ill with jaw cancer, and I'm quoting from Richard Miles in Carthage Must Be Destroyed here, quote, as a final irony, the man whose silken tongue had propelled him to such notoriety was burnt alive on his funeral pyre because the disease had robbed him of the capacity to move or speak, end quote. Boy, he finally took that L. <laughs> he took that L hard. That's a hard L to take. The message here is, mm. in both of these historical references, no matter <laughs> what Jerry Jones might have said to his team, <laughs> either before week 16 or before week 17, it ain't going to matter because that Dallas Cowboys team is just a tire fire right now. Oh, I'm telling you. Yeah, I mean, they're they're on the verge of mutiny themselves, so it's it's looking real bad for them. What's amazing is seeing all the, like, Cowboys writers hint yeah. at what's to come <laughs> on Black Monday. Like, there's going to be the, like, post-Festivus errand of grievances <laughs> where, like, Garrett and company are just going to be, like, laid bare on funeral pyres, so to speak. Yeah, he's run out of scapegoats at this point. Scott Linehan is no longer there to place the blame on. Like, the offense was was very, very good under Kellen right. Moore. And the thing is, too, you can't fire Garrett now 
Because if the Eagles lose and Dallas yeah. wins, you're in the playoffs. You're going to do that with like an interim staff. You just fired everyone. Like that. Right. That would be that would be crazy. So you're stuck with this guy. And I thought Dak had a very uh, skillful dodge of a question oh, asking yeah. about Garrett's future, and he was like, "Look, I'll be damned if I'm going to talk about somebody's future here when I'm on the last year of my contract too." Is basically right. what he said, which I thought was a fantastic answer to kind of shift away from that while not supporting and also not you know like defaming you know uh, Garrett or however you want to put it. But Mark, uh, speaking of Dallas, we'll we'll get into the the meat and potatoes of the show here. I mean, the meat and potatoes is always the historical reference, right. and I thought we did a good job there. But let's get into a, a quick uh, performance review from Carson Wentz. We don't have to go too far into it because we are a week away from it. Obviously, the holidays push the schedule back. But looking back at this game against Dallas, what did you think of Carson Wentz, who is obviously dealing with a depleted set of receivers? A, a broken ribbed Zach Ertz and so on. Yeah, I, I thought it was another solid sort of performance from him, obviously in a game that they needed. The two things where I was most impressed with him were pocket movement and processing speed. Yeah. You know, you look at some of the stuff on the early drives where they had that, you know, slot fade. It was a second 14 at the 13, 30 mark of the first quarter. They wanted slot fade. It was covered. Dallas showed something different, rotated into a cover three look. He comes off the fade, comes right to the sit route really quickly. I really liked that. And then the third and seven, the very next play, they have that little follow a trail concept from the right, which you know the Eagles seem to love to run this year. He spots the blitz, replaces it with the ball. Mm. I really like that design. You know, later in the first half at the at their final drive, you know he had some really good throws there too. He had nice time at an anticipation on a curl route to Goddard. That I love the design that shallow cross they run with the sit route over the top of it, which picks off the man defender trying to get over the top of the rub. You know, that was a really good read and throw. And the pocket movement too. You know, early in the third quarter, second and 10, 929, where he just finds Sanders on a check down route working to the right side. The sort of subtle pocket movement where he slides to his left away from where Sanders is going to throw that check down route. I thought that was a beautiful play with him. Yeah. You know, finally the out and up to Ward off of play action, I think late third quarter. Loved that too because that was a great read and throw. Made that with anticipation too because as Ward was breaking out, he was pulling the trigger. Like he knew he had a shot to make this throw. Got it out of his hands on time. Anticipation throw on a double move, which is really nice. And then some of the scrambles and the scramble drill throws were nice to see as well, especially the one to Jay Jaw earlier in the game. And so I thought it was an impressive performance in a game that they had to win. Not not much more I think you can really say about it. It was just a good game. They needed to win. They got the win. They got to get one more. Yeah, and, and it continues the momentum that the Eagles have been on and Carson Wentz has been on after being heavily criticized after having poor games against the Seattle Seahawks and the New England Patriots. Obviously, I mean, there's always the, the, the caveat that there's been a revolving door at the wide receiver position and the tight end position, and that continues. But, I mean, there's the, the thought in Philadelphia that the team goes as Carson Wentz goes, and there's some truth to that now you can understand the context of well who is the team <laughs> right, right now and what can you really expect from Wentz but with the way New York has been playing lately at least in the past couple of weeks and especially with Daniel Jones back which we're going to talk about after the break you might need Carson Wentz to really put the team on his back with this de depleted wide receiver and tight end core what, what do you think are the realistic expectations for Wentz going into next week is it more of the same I think it is more of the same. I mean, this is a, a giant secondary. That their defense isn't great. Their run defense is probably their strength as a defensive unit. Mm -hmm. I mean, say what you want about you know what Daniel Jones was able to do last week against the Giants. Dwayne Haskins, until he got hurt, you know, he was having a pretty good game as well. 
Yeah. It's not like a situation where you're going to look at the Giants defense and think that they're going to be able to really stop you. I mean, I don't I don't think so. Wentz should have a solid game in this one. Yes, there are injury concerns with the Ertz and others and they're piecing and stapling and super gluing an offense around him. But I think that he can deliver this game and then look, you do that, you get a home playoff game. And I mean, who knows what happens in, in home playoff games. And so uh, I think it's an opportunity for Wentz to sort of put a nice cap on this season, this regular season at least, and go out and say, look, you know, the goal of a quarterback many times is to elevate the level of play in those around you, you know, whether through oration or play. Wentz has done that over the past couple of weeks. All the people that sort of thought that, oh, you know, Foles was able to do that and inspire this team and lead this team and deliver. Well, Wentz is doing that for you right now hmm. and playing better football. So yep. there you go. I, I think that's a nice way to sort of put it. As I said on Twitter, all I'm saying is that the 79 Rams, the 2008 Cardinals, the 2011 Giants made the Super Bowl at 9-7. and seven. The Giants yep. ended up winning that. That's literally all I'm saying. Don't yeah, read yeah. anything and, more and, into and, this. And, and, and who did the Giants beat? In that one, <laughs> the Patriots, the yeah. Patriots, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so come on, if it's gonna happen, I mean, look, th- this is a, this is still a sport where you can get on a run late, okay, and it's a sport where if you have some of those signature type victories, it can propel you to greater heights than you th- might have thought imaginable. And let's think about this: two signature type wins in the past, actually three, really, if you go back to the Giants game. Because hmm. that was a game you're coming off your bye, you lose three straight off of your bye, right? Yep. Most people are probably thinking you're five and seven, you're done. Hmm. But you have a must win on a Monday night, the return of Eli and all that stuff. You get down early, you could have folded in the tents, right? Yep. You could have gotten back on the proverbial ships, but you didn't. And you come back and you win in overtime, and then you have another sort of at the gun kind of win against Washington, and then in the game that everybody had circled on their calendars at this point. National TV audience, I was at a holiday party, a neighborhood holiday party. That Sunday night, I walk in, big screen TV, everybody's sitting in front of that game. (laughs) And even better, I go down into the basement and I see, what do I see staring me in the face as a Patriots fan? Mm. Kelsey in the mummer suit, a big framed poster board of him giving that speech. I felt awkward pulling out the camera and taking a picture of it, so I did it, but this was an Eagles house, but it was the game was on, the holiday party was focused around this game. It was a national event, and they won it, three straight yeah. games. And sometimes, like I said, the main point is you have those signature type wins. They've now had three. It could be the thing that propels you into this postseason and beyond. Yeah. And the interesting thing is, and me and Ben had talked about this, you know, if Wentz gets down, does he start to press in that game and whatnot? I mean, we never saw if he was going to press or not. He has struggled in push games before. He had struggled in big games against Dallas. He had struggled against the Seahawks, against the Patriots. But this one, he's able to put it together. And he's also been able to put to bed some of the clutch stuff that that had been surrounding him before that, which I think is overblown. I think Think game-winning drives are a little bit overblown too, but that's oh, yeah. a whole different thing. I mean, Matthew Stafford is like one of the best in the league yeah. right now in terms of who has the most game-winning drives. And what does it mean? What it means nothing. Yeah, like some of those could be like early in the fourth quarter when you hand the ball off fifteen times. Like, yeah, no, that's a holdover from like the newspaper era, in, right. in my opinion. So that's that's our little piece on Wednesday. When we come back, we're going to talk about some Daniel Jones because uh, the Giants don't look the same as they have for a good portion of the season, and might be a reason for concern. In Philadelphia, headed into week 17. That's coming up next here on the QB Sco Show. And we are back here on the QB Sco Show, episode 46. SP Nation, Bleeding Green Nation are bringing it to you. Michael Kest here with Mark Schofield. Mark, 
Let's dig into the New York Giants and uh, the, I guess the new look uh, New York New York Giants offense because they've put up 77 combined points over the last two games, two of their highest scoring outputs. I mean, one of them was with Eli and and you know Saquon Barkley looking healthy again, healthier than he did against the Eagles a few weeks back. I think he's finally fully healthy after that high ankle sprain, so that adds an ident- a dynamic threat. And then Daniel Jones comes back last week against Washington, and look, I understand. Miami, Washington, not great defenses. From what I'm being told, they are, in fact, bad defenses. But when you just watch the process and you watch the film of Daniel Jones against Washington, it's not just the stats, the 352 yards, the five touchdowns and zero interceptions. And, you know, he had his normal fumble in there. I was probably the most impressed by Daniel Jones from a process standpoint than I have been all year. What about you, Mark? Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think what's interesting is we've seen now with Jones and actually going back to last year with Josh Allen and Sam Darnold, there are these instances where rookie quarterbacks get hurt, sit down, and sort of figure things out and come back and look much better. I mean, you can say that about Josh Allen last year. He went down, he comes back, he seemed to sort of piece it together. Darnold had the foot injury, comes back, and Sam Darnold down the stretch last year was tremendous. It's a reason why, you know, people sort of thought there were hopes for the Jets perhaps sneaking into the playoffs. And I think we're seeing that with Jones as well, because, you know, from a sort of conceptual standpoint, you know, if you're a rookie quarterback, think about what you've gone through. You've gone through, you play your bowl game, then it's senior bowl, combine prep, combine prep, combine, team meetings, draft, rookie minicamp. It's like a whirlwind sprint. You haven't had really a chance to catch your breath. And now you're suddenly, you're an NFL quarterback. And while, you know, Allen and Donald were starters, like Jones became a starter early in the season, he didn't really get a chance to sort of figure it out. So now he's adapted to life as an NFL starting quarterback, having never done it before. And sure, he sort of watched Eli in week one and maybe got a sense of how Eli did it. But it's one thing to watch a guy prepare during the week. It's another thing to do it yourself. Now he has to do it. Then he gets hurt. So what does he do? He gets a chance to sort of sit back. Now watch Eli again with that frame of reference where this is how I did it. Now I get to see how Eli was doing it see how he pieces it together during the week. And it gives you as a rookie quarterback a chance to like reevaluate how you approach the process of being an NFL quarterback. And I think that is critical. And you've seen, you've seen it this year with Minshew. You know, he gets sat down, he comes back and looks perhaps even a little bit better. And so I think this little time away from the field was beneficial for Jones. He looked great against Washington with a caveat that it is the Washington defense and they had some serious busts in the secondary the touchdown to Saquon Barkley, that was one of those nerdy football Twitter moments where my DMs were instantly filled with people looking at the dots and saying, okay, who busted on this play? Because it was a bust in the secondary. Now, good, great friends, Coach Vass and Bryce Rossler were trying to figure it out. It looks like a linebacker should have carried Barkley vertically, but Jones looked good in this game. And it's an interesting thing to think about from a Giants perspective. You finally get Saquon Barkley healthy, you get him involved in the vertical passing game, and good things happen. Because would you suddenly have your running back, who's a number three in terms of a defensive coverage standpoint, getting off fast and getting vertical up the seam? It's going to create some conflicts. It's going to put some guys into the wrong position. It's going to make some guys make mistakes. And so, you know, there was a good thing to see if you're a Giants fan, perhaps a stressful thing to see if you're an Eagles fan. But Jones looked pretty good. The caveat with Jones is always this, and you snuck it in there. He had the one fumble, you know, the one obligatory fumble, which you can pretty much. Before the game starts, put down in the box score, Daniel Jones, fumble, and then maybe Colin, you know, leave it blank for fumble lost or fumble recovered. But he's going to put the ball on the turf. He still has to figure out how to handle the pocket. He has to figure out how to 
you know, respond to and adapt to pressure in the pocket. He has to learn that sort of offhand thing like we talked about with Wentz at times. So, you know, there are some issues with him. He looks good. He looks better than many people thought, myself included. He was going to be in the NFL, and we'll see what he does this week. And with the Eagles' defense, I mean, let's talk about maybe Dak's performance and how the Eagles did against Dak and how we can kind of translate that to the Giants because I feel like the – and I talked about this on the Kiss and Solak show – that the Eagles were extremely lucky in some certain situations in that game. Number one, you got a Dak Prescott that was, I believe, clearly hindered. Yeah. So there's that. And then there's the case of, okay, and, I, and again, I mentioned this before, but the Randall Cobb drop, uh, you know, in, in the fourth quarter during the field goal drive to make it a one-score game, the overthrow to Tavon Austin, the drop by Michael Gallup. There were these different situations where the Eagles were clearly beat and are still susceptible on defense that I feel like a quarterback like Daniel Jones with the with the weapons that they have. I mean, if you look at their weapons, I would take Sterling Shepard, Darius Slayton, uh, over, and Golden Tate over the Eagles wide receiver core for sure. So Daniel Jones has more to work with than Carson Wentz. And I believe w- with the Eagles, Ronald Darby is on IR. Jalen Mills is banged up with an ankle. We'll see if he goes. There are serious holes in this defense that I feel that can be exploited. So I am very concerned about this. You know, the one thing to sort of keep in mind is Slayton's banged up. You know, he's got a knee injury. You know, he should be good to go. And he had, look, he had a career game. Against the Eagles a couple weeks ago, 154 yards, two touchdowns. You know, it should not have been a surprise to the gentle listeners because we talked him up, you know, in, in that game. But he was really sort of limited in what happened against Washington, you know, so he might be there. Look, Sterling Shepard is still a good wide receiver. I would certainly like him on my roster. I think Golden Tate still brings something to what they're doing on offense. Caden Smith interestingly enough, has become sort of this like weird go-to option for them in the red zone. Obviously, tight ends are always a good option in the red zone. Eagles fans know this well, but you know that's who Jones found twice in this game, once on a sort of a corner route with pretty good velocity on and then the game winner where he's able to sort of drop the arm angle a bit. Nice placement on that crossing route from left to right. right. And so, look, they have some weapons. You know, Again, it, it comes down to sort of what we were saying when we did the Jones edition of this show before it was announced Eli Manning was going to be the starter. It does sort of play to the Eagles' strengths defensively because you are able to get pressure on him. And one thing we sort of thought about was Manning was better at handling pressure than Jones was. And I think that, that still stands. And so even though Jones has had this sort of a brief window to recalibrate his thinking, the Eagles should be able to get pressure on him. And he'll put the ball on the turf and he'll make some mistakes under duress. And I think that's where the Eagles defense can sort of capitalize even as banned up as they are. I agree. So, Mark, what do you think? What are your What's your final thought on this game? Are the Eagles going to be able to contain Daniel Jones enough? Is Carson Wentz going to be able to run up the score on a bad Giants defense despite very little to work with on his offensive uh, in his offensive weapons? Who wins this game? I got to know. Spoilers, man. Spoil the whole thing for me. My spoiler alert is this. You and I are going to have to spend either New Year's Eve or New Year's Day together doing a playoff preview show, yeah. right? Because yeah. look at next – we're going to have to get ready to go. This is a moment, right? It's one of those moments, and we've seen the Eagles start to seize these moments in the last three games. I think they come through in this one as well. Yes, Daniel Jones presents some problems. Yes, a healthy Saquon Barkley could be an issue. But I don't think that the Eagles are going to come this far, burn the ships – and then just get slaughtered, you know? So I think Wentz is going to deliver. I think this Eagles offense is good enough. The emergence of Miles Sanders has been huge. 
And so I think this time next week or hopefully before that, we are recording our wildcard weekend preview edition of the QB Sco Show. One can only hope. It's what the gentle listeners deserve. The gentle listeners. I'm glad you said that, Michael, because I think it is only fitting and fair on this final regular season edition to acknowledge the gentle listeners. Because, look, I am a unholy man in a most holy place here. I am a dirty, filthy Patriots (laughs) fan doing a podcast on an Eagles podcast network. But this season has been – it has been such a joy, obviously, to do the show with my great friend Michael Kist, who I absolutely adore and cannot (laughs) wait to see in a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I hope to remember all of it. But more than anything else – the interaction from the gentle listeners this year, from all the great listeners to this show, you know, all the tweets, the retweets, the suggestions for historical references, it's been a blast. And, you know, Michael and I are so lucky to get to do what we do anyway because we get paid to talk about football, which is stuff we would be doing anyway, whether it was just right. with our family members, you know, with their eyes glazed over or the gentle friends at the end of the bar where we would hang out at night. Yeah. But we get to do it together which is a joy but we get to do it with great listeners and great fans of the show and great supporters of the show and obviously you know grace with her swag for the show and the yep. branding for the shows the holiday kiss and soul stuff it's been a blast doing the show i love doing it each and every week i love doing it with mike love doing it with the listeners we can't thank you enough to many more years of doing this with you buddy and with the gentle listeners as well that's all we got for you on the last episode of the regular season qb sco show of 2019 we hope you enjoyed we'll catch you next time hopefully we're talking about playoffs let's go eagles